Amen. Thank you for doing such a brilliant reading of a long passage, Seth. It is a, it's a joy to be able to come to the Word each and every week. It's a joy to be able to hear these words that God's given us and revealed Himself to us in them. And to hear from Paul and these final words to the Philippians. Uh, so before, before we kick off, why don't we pray? Father, Your Word is good. Your Word contains in it life, the message of life. As we come to it today, Lord, I pray that you would use uh, my weaknesses, my little gifts that you've given me, and open up what you want to tell us today, Lord, that we would see you more clearly, walk with you more nearly, and love you more dearly. Father, we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, I'm going to start off with today with, with a question. What does it take for you to say, life is good? Does, does everyone have to be well? Do you have to have enough money in the bank to make you feel comfortable? Do your bills need to all be paid on time? Does your car, your appliances, all your relationships, do they all need to be running smoothly? What does it take then to say that, yeah, life is not good? Is that when you're experiencing problems related to your health? Is that when you're having issues with your relationships, finances, cars. The reality is, for most of us, we're facing problems each and every day. We're facing issues each and every day. And obviously, we're all tempted to complain. It's one of my greatest weaknesses, one of those sharp edges I'm hoping the Lord continues to smooth out. But we are tempted to complain when things aren't going exactly as we like, and for some of us, including myself, it can sometimes become a way of life. And we, we get into this rut that we're never actually happy at all. So here's the question, in the midst of this world, with all its temptations, with all its attractions, how do we, as people, be content? How do, how do we find contentment? And so we've come to a really important part of the letter now. Now, this is the final words of Paul to the Philippians. And it teaches us something that is truly profound. But it's something that's easy to miss. It's easy to miss because we always come to the, the text, to the Bible, with our own expectations and assumptions. And so when we come to the Bible and we read it and it doesn't match, it doesn't match with our expectations and assumptions, then sometimes you miss what's being said. Now, I think... That's always bad, but in this case, it's bad, because in chapter 4, there is a wonderful gift that God has for us, and that gift is contentment. He closes out his letter with this gift of contentment, rounding everything out from chapter 1 right through to 4. And who doesn't want to be content? And here is someone that has learned that secret. That's what we're going to look at today. The book, the letter to the Philippians, grows out of someone who is content. The shape of the whole letter shows someone who is content, and Paul communicates that he really has learned the secret. You know, this is a bloke who is in dire straits. He's in dire need. He's writing this letter, currently sitting in prison, and yet he is full of joy. He's overflowing with thanksgiving. He's rejoicing, and he reflects that the fact that he is contentment, no matter the circumstances, doesn't need to be a secret. We've learned it. Don't you want that? 
Don't you want to be content regardless of your circumstances? And today we don't have the time to really go through absolutely every nugget of gold. But I would really encourage you, spend some time in this passage this week. Spend some time dwelling in these words this week. But what we can do today is understand the main point that Paul is making. And so this morning what we're going to see is that the secret to being content is, you know, three things. Is to learn to rejoice in the Lord, number one. Is to request from the Lord, number two. Is to rest in the Lord, number three. We're to rejoice, request, and rest in the Lord. And so firstly, we rejoice in the Lord. Paul begins by encouraging the reader to, the, the reader to the Philippians in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. He says the word rejoice 16 times in this letter. 16 times for a short letter. That is amazing. And just remember, Paul, he is sitting in, in a first century prison. And picture this. There's probably no windows. There's no ventilation. There's no lighting. Every prisoner is beaten and locked in chains. When they're fed, they're only fed half as much as a slave. Hygiene's non-existent. And so the stench of excrement, urine, body odor would have been absolutely horrible. Lice would have been abundant. Many prisoners were actually suffering and dying due to a lack of air. A common cold was lethal because their immune systems were so, so compromised. And just to top that all off, Added to the physical turmoil was the psychological suffering of being stuck in a place treated like that. Paul's pretty convincingly proved that you can rejoice whatever the circumstances. As he's writing from, I don't know, two by two block, pitch black, not eating. And how can he do that? How can he say that he is content? It's not because he's rejoicing in his circumstance. If Paul were to rejoice... In his circumstances, if he were to do that, it'd be an absolute roller coaster ride. You can read about Paul's journeys, shipwrecks a couple of times, prison, in and out of prison, beaten, stoned. If his joy was based on his circumstances, he would have the right to be angry, the right to be despondent, the right to be miserable, never smile ever again. But he doesn't rejoice in his circumstances. He doesn't leave his joy resting on whether he's had a good week. He doesn't leave his joy resting on uh, a week that he hasn't faced any hardship. He isn't the kind of guy that's coasting by going, I'm just going to enjoy this week, enjoy life, and hope that eventually people will see, oh, you're a really nice Christian guy, and ask you why that is. Rather, he preaches the gospel. People don't like it. It goes against the grain. And what does it do? It makes his life harder and harder. His mission isn't to ride the wave of comfort, but to see people, to hear and understand the message of his saviour, of our saviour. And so Paul rejoices in the Lord, and his joy comes from knowing that, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And so the first thing that Paul reminds us is that an eternally joyful life can only be generated from a changed life. What are you going to rejoice in if you're lost spiritually? You're going to rejoice in the fleeting things of this world? As soon as you drive out a brand new car off the lot, all of that hard-earned money, you're never getting back. 
five minutes, gone. See you later. Couple of grand. The new house is eventually going to get marks in the paint. Unfortunately, thank you, we've got brand new paint. Every single mark's our fault. <laughs> you know, there's always going to be something newer, something better. There's going to be friendships that are based on some common experience, but they're very little substance. You're just seeing people where you go. Friends, what are you going to rejoice in? True joy is knowing that despite the fact that we've actually walked away from our Lord, our God who wants to give us life, our sin, our rejection has been settled. The grace of God has been secured. The gift that Sky was talking about, that has been secured. But Paul does go on. And he reminds us that although we have every reason to rejoice, that doesn't necessarily change our fleshly problems. We're still human. We're still fallen, broken people. It doesn't change that on earth there are things that do cause us issues and anxieties. And so the second thing that Paul teaches us after rejoicing is to request from the Lord. And so jump, look with me at verse 6. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. You know, God says we shouldn't be anxious about anything. And so we should bring our anxieties to Him in prayer. What are your anxieties? Think about it. What are your anxieties? Maybe you don't even know what triggers it. Maybe it just happens and it grips you in the middle of nowhere. That's the imposing squeeze around your neck, the squeeze around your chest, and the slow feeling of being overwhelmed and the urge to cry, to run, and to escape. For many of us, that is a reality. But maybe it's a little bit more tangible. Maybe it, there are things that set it off. Just facing a crowd, looking into the unknown. Maybe it's relational conflict. Maybe it's not being able to control every situation, whether at work or at home. Maybe it's paying the mortgage. Maybe it's knowing where your children are at with the Lord, where your children are at at all. Are they safe? Maybe it's just the exhaustion of full-time work, uh, work, finding work in this COVID world. So as someone personally who struggles with clinical depression and anxiety, I know that these words can sometimes feel fleeting, like comfort actually isn't attainable. Friends, I know for some of us, the turmoil of anxiety has to be dealt with medically, but here Paul, Paul is saying much of what Jesus said in Matthew 6. Here in Philippians and in Matthew, what they're saying is it has to do with worldly worries. And so like Jesus, Paul is saying, yes, you must absolutely pray about your anxieties. You're not to stay anxious, but remember. Pray about your anxieties, but remember, God doesn't promise an easy fix. He actually promises something better. Philippians 4 is great because Paul shows what God's answer is. Chapter 4, verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So is the result of praying about our anxieties that God's going to give us what we want? That God's going to make us happy? No and no. The result of praying about our anxieties is a safe peace. And like we've been going through this whole series, Philippians is about having a Jesus-centered mind en route to heaven. 
In the last two weeks, chapters three and four talk about how our future-focused mindset keeps Christians safe in hardship and in standing firm until heaven in this present pursuit of our life. This trudge as God drags us, like Sky said, into this family and in onto the end. So the verses here are detailing what it might look like to hinder that Jesus-centered thinking. Things like anxiety, worldly anxieties. God's priority then, more than giving us our wishes, is to actually protect our thinking from the anxieties of this world. Simply praying for the tangible necessities of this world, yeah, it's good, but it sometimes can show that our priorities are way, way smaller than God. He wants to keep us for eternity. Do not worry about tomorrow. There are enough worries about today. Look at the birds, look at the grass. See how it grows, see how they're fed. So stop, pray bigger. Ask God for that safe peace which will keep you. That safe peace is the understanding of true rest in God. But you may be at this point going and thinking, well, but aren't the coming verses about to say we can do all things through Christ? Why then can't we attain our goals? Why can't we attain our prayers? Well, might I just suggest again that Paul is speaking about being content. And this is the fact lies at the very core. You know, he said, rejoice. He's now said request. But finally, he actually reminds us that we actually rest in the Lord. So finally, he says, rest in the Lord. I've skipped a couple of verses to 12, verses 12 and 13 just so you're following me. To rest in the Lord isn't to rejoice in God because when you present your request to him, he's going to snap his fingers like a genie and give you exactly what you want. You know, he's not going to put you in your happy place. God's not like that. God's not a genie. You don't you know, need to rub it properly. Get a bit of brasso. Make sure you rub it to squeaky clean and here he is, three wishes, bang, bang, bang. What is actually, what is said by Paul? Verse 12, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Verse 13, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. You know, there's, there's often this maxim thrown around, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. All athletes like to use it. Really, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. That's more like it. But context is king. And you can, we can see by the context what has come before and what comes after that this verse is actually about contentedness. It's not actually about some spiritual boost for the task. You're not walking around with some Holy Spirit EpiPen going, oh, I can do all things, bang, I'm good to go. God is promising that he's going to give you strength for your daily task. He's not promising that he's going to give you strength to do anything you want to do. If you're standing on top of a building, this building's burning up, stairs burnt away, elevators are absolutely cooked, they're shot. The only way to get out of this situation is to be standing on one side and jump 20 meters to the next building. You're thinking, how can I do this? And then, oh, it's a good thing, your mate walks up next to you and says, just remember, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things. Just remember, it's only 20 meters. How do you respond to that guy? You go first. 
clearly the text is not saying you can do all things. As much as I'd love to dunk on LeBron, it's not going to happen. I'd love to beat Tiger Woods. I mean, I'd, I'd love to even just be able to play golf. Sorry, guys. <laughs> the context helps us to understand. And he says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living pr- plenty or in want. What Paul is saying is, I can live in poverty or I can live in wealth. I can live in either of these scenarios and I can be content. And I can do all of this. I can pull all of this uh, contentedness off, whatever the circumstances, because my powerful God is at work in me to give me the strength to do it. It's the verse that's saying when things go bad, God can sustain me and help me to be content. When things are going well, I can be content without being distracted by the wealth. And how? I can do that by the power of God. It's a hugely, hugely helpful verse. That actually when read and understood correctly, says that God is actually there to help us in the midst of disaster, anxiety, the midst of things that are going wrong. God is there to empower you to be content in Him nonetheless. And so that when we look at it, why is he even raising the question about being content in any and every situation? The larger context of the whole of Philippians and particularly chapter 4, it's because he wants to demonstrate that his joy, verse 10, is not because of his circumstances having changed. His joy, he's rejoicing, like point one, not because in his circumstances. His joy, rather, here is because what is going on for them, the Philippians. Really what he's saying is, what I'm thrilled about in receiving this gift, this, this money from Epaphroditus, who is the man that they sent, it's not because it's going to help me pay the bills. It's not because uh, I'm going to get some food. What he actually says is, I don't need it. I don't actually need it. I'm already content. What he's saying is, actually, I'm thrilled because it shows that the Philippians are doing things that reflect that they've understood the gospel properly. You know, how different is it when someone poor gives much? someone rich a little that's what Jesus says a lady that's standing in the temple and gives her last two pennies so what's Paul's ministry been about what's his life burden the reason he can rejoice in the Lord the reason he brings his request to the Lord the reason that he's able to rest in the Lord is because he knows Jesus and the gift of life that comes through him His life's burden has been to teach, to help people to see the significance of who this man Jesus is. The way that when you see Jesus, everything else makes sense. Everything else makes sense. Friends, the material world, it provides gratification. It's a dopamine hit. But it doesn't provide satisfaction and contentedness. How do we do that? To have, how do we deal with that? It's to have Jesus overwhelm you. To fill you such that you don't need anything else. The secret to contentment is to realize that in Christ, you actually have it all. That's the future focus. You have it all. To grasp the wonder of what he has actually done. To know that you will be with him forever. And because of that, I don't care what else I have. To have that secured for me is everything. 
That's the secret of success, guys. That's what Sky's alluding to when she says, you know, the Lord drew me here and now I've been given this gift and I want to share it. I want to worship this God who's given me life. Friends, we can rejoice. We can request and we rest knowing that everything in this life and the next is sorted in Jesus. Don't rejoice in your circumstances. It's far too fleeting. Choose now where your heart is going to rejoice. Rejoice in the world or contentment, rejoicing in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that in the Sunday next, before Easter, we've been able to come to this passage to think about what it is that we do find contentment in and what it is that we do rejoice. Lord, as we come now to our hearts, you are the only one who truly knows our hearts. Lord, will you soften it? Will you mold us in your hands to be your people, that you would save us, to pull us out of darkness and into your glorious light? Lord, there are some of us that face more anxieties than others. There are some of us that uh, are facing different ailments, different issues that uh, cripple our faith. Lord, I pray that we would come before you. We would prayerfully be speaking to you to give us that peace, to know that whatever we gain in this life is rubbish, but to gain the, the most valuable treasure in Jesus Christ and the life that comes through him. Father, I pray now that for all of us, despite what anything is going on, that we would be able to say, no, we are content in Jesus. It is well with my soul. Amen. And that was my attempt at a segue. Many of you will know that this was written by a man who at the time had lost everything. He was on a ship, he'd lost his daughters, he lost his wife later on. And despite all of those things, he says, it is well with my soul. I'm sold with the Lord. Unfortunately, he's no longer with the Lord. He died as a man that wasn't in him. But we can still rest in his words that he said. It is well with my soul. It is well.